and welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Ah, it was in the bleak December when each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Welcome to the show, everyone. I can tell you it's nights like tonight that I'm glad I have a fireplace, because nothing beats a crackling fire on a cold evening. So come on in, dust off the chill, and find a seat by the fire, warm your bones. And while you're here, I hope you don't mind if I indulge in a few spooky stories. Besides, nothing pairs better with a toasty fire than a ghost story. So sit back, relax, if you can, because tonight we travel to the mountains of Oregon. The following is Dakota's entry. I want a quick warning on this one. This story does contain a brief mention and description of murder. Hey Derek, this is Dakota. I live in Oregon. I actually just got done listening to the Halloween episode and um, once again was reminded about more stories from my past. I've called in a couple other times and this one I've been holding on to for a little bit, but I'll try to make it as short as I can. But basically, I have some grandparents that live, uh, I won't say where they live exactly, but they live basically in the mountains near Sandy, Oregon. Um, between Sandy and around like government camp area. So they have a pretty large piece of property and it's very private up there and it's really quiet. And um, at night it gets really, really dark because they're in the middle of the woods. And I used to go there all the time as a kid. And I was always a little creeped out about their place just because it was in the woods, like I said. And at night it got all but pitch black. And as a child, that's you know, really scary. And my grandparents would say they've seen bears up there and everything. I never saw anything like that, but I have a cousin who used to live with them and he's about like 15 years older than me. So I was about probably from age five to 10 when he would start to tell both me and my sister and sometimes a few of our cousins that he would see, well, actually, First of all, I should probably explain, um, there is a legend that I don't know if it's substantiated by anybody but my cousin, but he told me and my sister that there was this man that used to live in the woods really close to where my grandparents' house is, and he came home from work one day and found his wife cheating on him with another man and decided to kill them both and cut them into pieces and supposedly um, turn them into meat and eat them like turn it into like a burger or something like I don't know if it was exactly that and that part is probably fake but the part about the man killing them I'm not sure so let's bring that back to now my cousin would show us at the bottom of the really long driveway that would go up to their house a a long gravel driveway that again has no lighting we would see a light at the bottom and he told me that that is the lantern that the man who killed his wife and the guy that she was cheating on him with, he would walk around the woods with a lantern and he had a butcher knife in his hand and he would carry this around and apparently that's what he killed them with. Now, being five, of course, I believed him because he's my older cousin and even though I knew he would like to scare us and and mess with us, 
the fact that he would tell us this and then take us out onto their third floor balcony that faced their front area, which is their driveway. And they actually have two driveways that come up to their house, but one of them is really steep and you can't even see down it from the top. And the other one wraps around to the left. And that one you can see most of the way down. And that is the driveway that he would tell us we could see the um, man's lantern. And like every single time he would tell us, we would go out there and look and I would see a light down there every single time. And I would never see a light any other time. And the place where the light was, there's nothing there except a road. And there's a little pond that is there seasonally. It'll dry up during the warmer weather and freeze over in the winter if there's any water. I've been there, you know, hundreds of times and never have seen anything bizarre down there. But every time he would say, you know, I bet you we can see the light right now. We'd go out there and there would be a light down there. And I've never seen a man but I have seen that light. And even when I was old enough to know better, when I was old enough to know that he was just probably trying to scare me, I would still see it. My cousins have seen it, like other younger cousins. My sister has seen it. Anyway, I remember going home one night from their house on Christmas. We would go there every year and it was really dark, of course. And we were going down the other driveway, the steep driveway. Now, I remember going down this driveway, and I remember seeing the light on that driveway, which is the one I never had seen it on before. And in my kid brain memory, for lack of a better term, I do remember seeing what could have been a person holding a lantern out the door or out the car window. But I think that might have been just me, you know, being really scared or making it up in my head. I just was thinking, too, this is the most recent thing I remember about it. I was you know, I'm like 26 now. So I think I was about probably at the youngest 16. He told me that he was walking around the woods. And again, he's like 15 years older than me. So he was like almost 30 at that point. He would walk around the woods because they have a dog up there too. And he just would be bored. So he'd walk around. And he said one time he saw this guy wandering with the butcher knife in his hand. And, you know, my cousin's a pretty big guy, but he got freaked out, obviously. And um, I think he said he was even carrying a rifle with him because there's bears and everything up there. So he, even with the gun though, he said he was too scared to even, you know, see the guy and the guy didn't see him luckily. And he just kind of like really quickly walks back to their property. But I do believe him on that just because he did not look like he was joking. And I can typically tell when he's like just making something up. So he looked really freaked out. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate the time. Love your podcast. I listen to it every time there's a new episode. Hopefully I'll be on soon. All right, thanks, man. Bye. Thank you, Dakota. You know, I half expected the ghost to solve its own murder in this story. And who's to say that one day, she won't. But that scenario allowed me to recall a very famous ghost story from a rural mountain town in the state of West Virginia. The story of Zona Shue, or as she was known back in 1897, the Greenbrier Ghost. Elva Zona Haster was found dead in her home, apparently from natural causes. Her body was discovered by a boy who had been sent to the home by her husband of only a few months, Erasmus Stribbing Trout Shoe, or so-called Edward. She had sent the boy to the home to ask Elva if she needed anything before he came home from where he was working as a blacksmith. When the doctor, Dr. Nav, came to examine the body an hour or so later, she had already washed and dressed it for burial, putting her in a high-necked dress 
assistant placing a veil over her face. Dr. Knapp examined the body briefly, but was hindered by the fact that she was cradling her head and crying and he wouldn't let her go so the doctor could examine the head and neck. When the doctor tried, she became violent, so he left finding nothing substantially wrong with the body from the parts he could examine, putting down the cause of death initially as childbirth or more aptly complications from pregnancy. Alva was soon buried, but not before people started noticing that she kept paying particular attention to her head area and would become animated when people tried to go near it. He also wrapped a scarf around her neck that didn't match the burial dress, but told people it had been her favorite, so he wanted her buried in it. In addition to that, he put things around her head, such as a pillow and a rolled-up cloth, telling people he was doing it so that she could rest more comfortably in death. The clip comes courtesy of Highlight History. And normally, this is where this sort of story would end. A dead wife, a grieving, possibly guilty husband, left to rebuild his life. But this is when Zona's mother comes into the picture. Mary Jane Hester was always skeptical of Shu, and after her daughter's death, she began sending messages out to Zona, asking her to return from the dead to confirm her suspicions that Edward, or as I prefer to call him, Drought, was somehow involved. Well, after about a month, Mary's messages were evidently received. She dreamed that Zona visited her in the night, explaining that her husband Trout had strangled her and twisted her head until it snapped. According to the mother, the apparition even spun her head around 360 degrees to demonstrate the damage. Well armed with this info, Mary Hester went to court, and against all odds, they reopened the case. And on February 22nd of 1897, Zona's body was exhumed for a court-ordered autopsy. Ordered to be in attendance was Zona's husband, Trout. A later story printed by the Monroe Watchman newspaper said Shu sat whittling on a stick while his wife's body was examined. He seemed unconcerned until the doctor started working around her neck when Shu showed signs of extreme nervousness. Shockingly, the story purportedly told by Zona's ghost about her cause of death was confirmed. The autopsy showed that her neck had been broken and her windpipe crushed, showing that she had been strangled. Edward Trout Shue was arrested for his wife's murder. The trial took place in June 1897. Shue took the stand at his own defense during the proceedings. He admitted that he had served a turn in the pan, declared that he dearly loved his wife, and appealed to the jury to look into his face and then say if he was guilty. The trial only lasted eight days and deliberations went on for a little more than an hour. Judge McWerther could not instruct the jury to ignore the testimony about the ghost because it had been brought up by the defense, not the prosecution. Shu was found guilty of first-degree murder. Shu was imprisoned at the state prison in Moundsville. He died in March 1900 and was buried in an unmarked grave. Now that portion was taken from a video by The History Guy. History deserves to be remembered on YouTube. And a link to both of these clips can be found in the show notes at monstersamonguspodcast.com. Now I highly recommend watching both as they both go into details that I don't have time to delve into. So there you go, Dakota. If it's not a cruel prank pulled on an unsuspecting child, then perhaps it too is a crime-solving ghost just waiting for the right person to notice. Thanks again for sharing. Now our next entry is also nestled 
in the Appalachian Mountains, but the lights are in the sky for this one. Please help me welcome Seth from Kentucky to the program. Hey Derek, this is Seth from Versailles, Kentucky. I just wanted to call and share a story about something that happened to me when I was 13 years old. I lived on the second story of my home at the time, and there was a window that was right next to my bed, and it was really clear out this night. I used to lay down and just kind of like look out the window as I went to sleep. Could see the neighbor's house, could see up in the sky. So one night I woke up in the middle of my sleep, had to have been the middle of the night, and I didn't really know what was waking me up, but something was just causing me not to sleep. And I, uh, I opened my eyes and looked over at the window and saw this giant oval-shaped craft looking, I'm not really sure what it was, this giant object in the air outside of my window. There were orange lights beaming off of it, and I was terrified. I had never seen anything like that before in my life, and I didn't really know at all what to do. And so I was just trembling in my bed, and I closed my eyes, and by the time I had opened them, like, Split second after I saw as it was disappearing, I suppose, I saw it kind of like flash a little bit and I don't really know what happened after that. You know, I kept thinking, oh, I was probably dreaming and I well could have been dreaming, but I remembered it so vividly. I remembered exactly how I felt so vividly and it's really hard for me to truly believe it was a dream, but not really sure what happened. Just uh, thought that I'd share and I hope you can use this for something. I'm a really big fan of the podcast, and keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks, Seth. I was thinking the same thing you were. Maybe it was just a dream. You know, anytime there's a story that involves the bedroom, a bed, or sleeping, one of the first things I consider is that the person may be dreaming. But if Seth says that he wasn't, we'll just have to take him at his word. The other part that caught my attention was the mention that something woke him up. And you almost get the idea that whatever was in that craft was responsible. Or at least Seth thought so. And it reminds me of a story told by one of my favorite actors and fellow weirdos, Dan Aykroyd. Here he is describing that near encounter in the documentary, Dan Aykroyd, Unplugged on UFOs in the next five years. We're going to have occasions like the one I experienced in upstate New York in the mid-80s when I was, I woke up in the middle of the night and I said to my wife, they're calling me, they're calling me, I want to go outside, they want me to come outside and see. Something outside wants me to come out and say, oh, just go back to bed. I went back to bed, but in the next day in the media, in newspapers, in radio, all over upstate New York and Ontario and Quebec and Vermont, people spoke about this urge they had to go out of their houses at three in the morning and look up into the sky and 12,000 people shared this urge and they went out and it was a big big news story and of course the Air Force said that a Chinese rocket had exploded over New York State and what people saw was a massive miles high pink spiral in the sky above the Great Lakes that's good stuff Seth thanks for sharing and speaking of sharing If you have a story you'd like to share and possibly have played on the show, call the toll-free hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Now, I'm pretty sure it's only toll-free in the United States, 
So for all of you out of the country, record your story on your phone and email it to me. All the pertinent email information can be found on the website, monstersamonguspodcast.com. Now next up, we hear from Michael in the flatlands of Kansas. Hi, my name's Michael Brown. I'm from Salina, Kansas. I have a story that happened with me and five other buddies. It happened right outside of Salina, Kansas, in a little town called Tesket, Kansas. It was off Shipton Road, and it's this uh, location called Hot's House. It's an old house. Hot's, H-O-T-Z, is the name, I believe, the last name of the person that used to own it, probably in the late 1800s. The house had been known to have a lot of haunting experiences, known midgets jumping on people's backs in the basement um, and whatnot. But our experience was there was six of us guys in a Honda Civic driving out to the house off of I-70, one of the main highways that runs through Kansas. It was probably about one in the morning when we're driving out there. And the house is in the middle of nowhere. And we get off the main exit off of I-70, the exit towards Tesket, Kansas. And we turn on Shipton Road, which is the road that leads you out to the house. The house is still out there to this day, but it had a fire, so there's only the limestone left of the house. So we turn on the road, and we are heading out to the house. Um, it's six of us in a little little Honda car, so there's four guys in the back and two in the front. We pull up to the house. There's a bunch of trees surrounding the house, and you can't really see the house. It's probably about a quarter mile from the dirt road. So we pull in front of the house, park the car on the side of the road, hoping that nobody drives by and, you know, gets us in trouble for going up to the house. And the man that owns the property, that used to own the property, would come out with a shotgun if you ever saw anybody out there. Lots of satanic uh, practices, et cetera, uh, that were done out there. So we get out of the cars. We have a, all we have is our little cell phone lights. This probably happened 15 years ago, I would say. So cell phone lights weren't as bright as they are now. And we had a spotlight that you had to plug into the cigarette lighter, but we couldn't bring it with us. So we're exiting the car. We have to crawl through barbed wire to get to the house. Once we get out of the car, we hear a hissing noise, but there's no power. There's no propane or anything at this location. It's completely from probably mid to late 1800s. There's also a limestone tunnel that some believe that there was a slave tunnel that was an escape tunnel back in the days. But I think it's something more evil than that. But it's a natural limestone cave that's under the basement that I've previously been out to the house during the day and have been able to jump down into it. I mean, it's usually full with water. Who knows how far it goes, though. But anyhow, we are starting to walk up to the house. There's cow pies, chunks of barbed wire all over the up to the house, so it's hard to really get a quick entrance or exit from the house. And we, again, hear this hissing noise the whole time consistently as we're walking up to the house. It gets louder and louder as we get closer and closer. None of us understand what the noise could be. But as we get closer, it gets louder. So the front entrance to the house, you could see the two basement windows. And then there's the main level that's probably three or four feet off the level of the ground. So there's a stairway to the right of the house that you have to walk up and go left into the house. So we're getting up to the cement pillar. And if I was to stand in the basement, I'm at about 6'2". If I was to stand in the basement and look out the window, it would go up to about my upper chest. So you could see the upper chest from my, that part of my body. As one of us, two of us are on the cement platform in front of the house. A couple of us are about to walk in. Someone yells. They see something go from one window to the other window in the basement. So it freaks us out. And this whole time, it's a noise. 
um, again, sounding almost like a propane being released, getting louder and louder. We can barely hear each other talk at this point. So at this point, we kind of get freaked out. We have golf clubs and baseball bats, et cetera, um, just in case there might be some jugged out people or et cetera that might be out there. So we start walking backwards, kind of holding on to each other. I remember my brother was with me, and he was kind of holding on to the side of my shirt. We're probably from 18 to 22, maybe, age-wise. I'm 34 now. So we start to leave the house, walk back towards the road, get to the dirt road, get the spotlight. We shine the spotlight onto the house, and then a couple of us see a long, white-haired figure crawl out of the basement window onto the cement platform and kind of sit with your knees up and your leg between your knees, kind of almost like a lion might sit or something on the front cement pillar. So at this point, again, it's about a quarter mile from the road, and we have a spotlight through all these trees. So it's a little hard to see what exactly it is, but we could see two glaring eyes from the light and long, white, like Gandalf-style hair, and it looked real lengthy. And we all saw this creature, person, thing, whatever it might have been. We're all trying to make sense of it as we see it. All of us are athletic built. You know, I wouldn't say super tough guys, but somewhat. And all of us got a really bad feeling and decided not to go venture and see what this thing was that we saw come out of the basement window onto the cement platform, just kind of looking at us. So we decide to leave. We get in the car and we're heading back. And we're probably, I think Tess gets probably 20 miles from our hometown, Salina, Kansas. And we are heading back on the highway. And we get off the dirt road, off of Shipton Road, getting back onto I-70. And we get about a mile onto I-70 and something hits the front of the car. It's probably two in the morning. There's not many. There's only a couple semis on the highway, not many cars at all. So we're thinking maybe an animal. And we all felt the hit in the car. Again, we're packed in this car, four guys in the back, two in the front. So we could, we really felt something hit the front right of the car. So we turn around and we're trying to see where this animal might have been. So we're already freaked out from seeing this creature, whatever it was, at Hot House. So we turn around to try to see the animal we hit. And about a mile or maybe a half a mile past that same point, roughly where that first time we got hit was something hit the front of the car again the right side shredded the front tire but then it popped the tire just the tread came off so we're all freaked out as you can imagine at this point we pull over the side of the highway again at that point no semis or any cars pass us on a, a high trafficked highway because i'm guessing because it was two in the morning we get out and we see brown gunk all over the front right of the car which could have been from came from the tire but it was a solid gunk once we touched it. It wasn't like guts or any kind of pieces of animal or anything like that. So we're out there, you know, thinking Jeepers Creepers or something equivalent to that kind of thought. And again, it didn't pop the tire, it just took off the tread. We didn't have a spare tire. We're probably be another 10 or 15 miles or have to drive back into town on this tire. We look out in the field, look around, listen for noises, don't hear anything at that point. So we slowly drive back 40 miles an hour on a 75 mile an hour highway, get to a gas station and all just quietly kind of went our own ways at that point. And to this day, we have no idea what it was, but my boys and I really enjoy your stories and uh, thanks for the time to hear a story on the show. Thanks, bye. Thank you, Michael. And a reminder to listeners that views expressed by or repeated by submitters do not necessarily reflect mine. But moving on from that, this is a terrifying experience. To see something that unexpected in a setting like the Hot's house would be jarring at best, 
Now that said, I'm wondering if there is perhaps a logical explanation for the experience. I did some research on that part of Kansas and learned that homelessness is unfortunately on the rise there. So is it possible that Michael and his boys stumbled upon an older, unkempt squatter? Perhaps the squatter thought that the boys were the police, so that's why he sat out front of the place the way he did, waiting for the confrontation. Then again, we have heard several stories of these pale walker creatures, so I suppose it's possible that that may be the culprit here. Either way, it's a chilling story, so thank you, Michael, for taking the time to share. Oh, and I tossed a picture of the Hots house up on the show notes, so go take a peek if you dare. Now, real quick, this episode airs on Thursday the 17th, and Friday the 18th is the recommended ship-by date if you're wanting Monsters Among Us gear for the holidays. Now, I already know there's a delay on the beanie, so they probably won't be available. But we have tons of t-shirts and other gear, so get your order in ASAP and we'll try to get it there as soon as possible. You can visit the shop at Monsters Among Us podcast forward slash shop or just click on the shop tab. Now, this next one takes us west to Colorado. The following was submitted anonymously. Hello, I'd like to tell you a scary story. This happened in North Dakota on the Indian Reservation along the Missouri River. I lived there for a short time and I was 23 years old. I was at a party with some relatives and friends and got left behind. So I had to find my way back, which was about three miles away, walking. I had to cross the cemetery where there was elderly buried there. And so I was crossing through the cemetery and it was about 1.30 in the morning and very foggy. We live right by the Missouri River. I think that's why the fog was so bad. I barely could see. And um, when I was crossing through, there was uh, a man standing there at the end of the cemetery and I had to go right by him to get over to the other side. When I got through there, passing him, I got a real strange feeling of like somebody had walked by me real fast with the breeze of him and got a real scary chill through me and kept on walking. I didn't want to look back and um, made it home that night. And I have another one. Also, um, last year in December, I was walking home from work, which was also after midnight, and it was like a four, five mile to walk, uh, and I had to cross the railroad track. And when I crossed the railroad track, there was like footsteps of three people, three or four people running behind me the way it sounded. And I got so scared, I didn't want to look back. And I was like starting to pray that they didn't grab me or, you know, try to rob me or something. And so when I got to the top of the hill there, I turned around and there was nobody there. But that's happened to me twice when I crossed that railroad track at night. Thanks to a daughter, she's a fan of Monster Pod. She told me about telling scary stories and those ain't scary. I mean, they're like real. 
So one happened in North Dakota and one happened here in Denver, Colorado. Thank you for listening. Thank you, caller. That first story is chilling. I'm sure that most people's first thought would be that the figure is a ghost, given the cemetery and all. But I'm going to be upfront. The thought of that being a flesh-and-blood human is 1,000 times more frightening. I gotta say, it's very brave of you to continue on. And as for the latter story, I've walked some tracks that were a bit loose and would make weird sounds when you stepped on them. So perhaps that's an explanation that just might help you sleep at night. Either way, thank you for the entry, and please be careful out there. We have a few more entries left, so let's waste no time in getting to them. Next up, we hear from Jasper in the Golden State of California. Hi, Derek. This is Jasper from California. So, my story is about a UFO that happened in Puerto Rico in the 1980s. 1981, to be exact. This happened to my mom when she was about eight at the time. So, she and her family had a farmhouse in San Juan, I believe. And so, they went there for the weekend like they usually did. And one day, it was about like 8 or 9.30. So, my mom was just chilling outside because it was the weekend. She, you know... She didn't want to think about school or any of that. So she she was just chilling outside. And so next thing you know, she looked, up, she looked over to a lake that was near the farmhouse. And she saw a UFO. It was round and had a bunch of lights to it. It was slowly falling into the lake. And after that, she screamed. And her parents came out. And they looked and they saw it too. After that, I'm pretty sure it never happened again. But a few years after that, they sell it for financial reasons. So she didn't get another chance to find out what it was. It wasn't a drone because I'm pretty sure there's no other houses or anything around there. So that's my story. Thank you for the show. It's my favorite podcast ever. Keep on doing the good work. See ya. Thank you, sir. You know, speaking of Puerto Rican UFOs... On one of the latest episodes of Paranormal Caught on Camera, I was able to discuss briefly a nearly eight-year-old video that I'd somehow never seen before. Now, the video has no audio worth sharing, but you can see it in its entirety in the show notes. But essentially, it's a video not unlike the Tic Tac or GoFast videos from a few years back. And this one was actually captured by the Department of Homeland Security near the city of Aguadilla, Puerto Rico. The oval-like craft, first seen zipping over the island at 120 miles an hour, is then tracked as it makes its way under the surface of the ocean. Then, seconds later, re-emerges only to split into two identical craft. It was tracked underwater at speeds of 95 miles an hour. Now, the video was leaked by a whistleblower, and for anyone even remotely interested in the subject... It's a must-watch. So thanks again, Jasper, for the entry, and for reminding me that this video exists. Now before we push play on this next one, don't forget to like and follow all the Monsters Among Us social media accounts. 
Trust me, you'll be happy that you did. Now for this next one, we venture back to Colorado. And this time, we get to keep our feet on the ground. The following is Shane's entry. Hey there, Derek. This is Shane in Colorado again. I was just listening to Season 9, Episode 16. And, uh, man, this is really crazy because I feel like this entire season, there have been... So many, you know, I've always been waiting for stories that lined up with mine, you know, experiences that I had and stuff like that. But I swear, and, you know, I know you joke about synchronicities all the time with the Hellier uh, documentary and whatnot, but I swear this season has just been like, I've had three or four calls that I have been like, yo, that, that's happened to me. Like, that's the exact thing that happened to me. So anyway, I was listening to Leslie's call from season episode 16, and she talked about going down into the Wine Coop Brewery on a ghost tour. And I believe that I did the same ghost tour. It was probably October 2017. It was my uh, bachelor party. Always have been into the paranormal and stuff like that, and uh, usually not real big into the ghost stuff. I'm more of a cryptid guy, but... You know, I was looking around for things for me and my friends to do for my bachelor party. You know, we ended up going on this ghost tour and it was really cool. They take you down into some historic places in Denver and tell you the history behind a lot of things. And it was really cool. It was a lot of fun. But we did actually visit that as well. But that wasn't where my experience happened. The place where I had my experience was actually the Blake Street Tavern. And it used to go by the name of the Charles Iser Saloon. Um, They said there were, you know, things that happened uh, in the time of Prohibition, possibly some human trafficking and things like that, uh, that went on down there. You know, they used the vault for different things. But I thought what they told us was there was some kind of mob activity that had happened down there. And then there was like a certain room that had a safe down there that they were unsure of what they used it for. So, you know, we were able to enter the room and stuff like that immediately when we got into the basement. And mind you, this is October, so it was colder at this point. It was really hot down there. I remember it being real hot. I asked my friends, you know, hey, are are you guys burning up down here? And a couple of them said, you know, yeah, I feel a little warm. You know, a couple of the other guys said, like, nah, you're just imagining things. I was chalking it up to, you know, they're building up this ghost tour. So, of course, you know, we're thinking we're feeling all of these things. So we get into the back of the basement and there's, like I said, there's a safe there. And they, I feel like I remember them saying, you know what it was used for, but it was down there. And all of a sudden I had the sensation as if I was being like lightly choked and I couldn't talk correctly. And, you know, at first I'm thinking like, okay, well, they just hyped up this ghost tour and, you know, I'm, I'm imagining things and it's, you know, probably dust in my throat or something like that. And, uh, talking to my friends and I'm like yo I, I think I need to go upstairs because I I really feel like I can't breathe down here and they were like oh you're just freaking out or whatever so eventually I went back upstairs and I still felt like I had just these hands lightly around my throat and I remember they had said a person that was involved in this activity was violent and things like that so you know I, it was just a really strange feeling down in that basement You know, I'm not sure if I would chalk it up to anything paranormal, but I definitely did feel something there. You know, once we left the building, I felt fine. I felt like 
you know, nothing had even happened. It was just in there. I have hay fever, but otherwise I don't really have any uh, allergic reactions to anything or anything like that. I don't believe anybody else was having any trouble breathing in there. I believe it was just me. We did visit the Wine Coop Brewery. And while we were in the basement there with all the kegs and everything, we went to take a picture. And my friend Eric went to take a picture on his phone. And he had just gotten it a few weeks prior to that. A brand new phone. He pulled it out, opened the camera up. And as we're taking pictures, he sees his battery immediately drain and his phone turns off and it won't turn back on. He actually pulled me aside as this happened. And he was like, dude, look, you know, my entire phone battery drained. I just got this phone. I have no idea what the hell just happened. And we thought that was really weird. We left the brewery, went to our next stop on the ghost tour, and he waited and turned his phone back on. And his phone worked perfectly for the rest of the night. So I know that they say spirits have a way of using electronics to talk to us, you know, or you'll see, like, if you're using a camera or something in a haunted place, you'll see your battery drain very quickly and have malfunctions and things like that. So... Yeah, anyway, I wanted to thank you again for your platform and uh, all the hard work you do, and keep up the good work. Thanks so much. I'll call in with some more stories. Bye. Thanks, Shane. You know, over the past decade or so, I've been lucky enough to join a few of these tours. I've done ghost tours in Hollywood, San Diego, Sedona, Portland, Seattle, and frankly, I love them. Now, obviously, I don't get to do them now but I can't wait to hit the road when all this is over. I have a few in mind that I simply must take. Thanks again, Shane. And thanks for supporting your local weirdos. They're out there almost single-handedly preserving our paranormal history. And that brings us to tonight's finale. But real fast before we do, and I'm sorry to bring everyone down when we're trying so hard to stay spooky but today would have been my brother's 34th birthday. But sadly, he took his own life in September of 2017. While he might have managed to escape his problems, unfortunately, most of them were then willed to my parents, my other family, and myself. Now, this is very difficult for me to say, but it's taken many years of therapy, medication, help from my wife, and hard work to learn to live with the guilt, sadness, and, frankly, the PTSD of finding my baby brother dead in the woods. A vision that, frankly, still haunts me to this day. Now, I do not say this for pity. Far from it. To be honest, sharing this info with the world is one of the hardest things I've ever done, and certainly not something I was looking forward to. I think you all get a sense that I try to keep most of my life private. But I think it's important to see that side of suicide. It's important that folks realize that the living still has to pick up the pieces. And for our family, that's helping to raise my brother's little boy. He turns five in April. No, the point is that although times are tough, things are certainly looking bleak for many of us. Giving up simply isn't an option. So please, seek help. If not from family and friends, then from a professional, or at the very least, a suicide hotline. The number to which is 1-800-273-8255. Trust me when I say suicide 
is not the answer. It merely passes your troubles on to your loved ones and leaves a gaping hole in the hearts of the survivors. So please, get help. Communicate, and above all else, don't be ashamed. Times are near impossible for all of us right now. There's no shame in asking for help. I had to do it myself. Happy birthday, bud. Okay, let's shake all that off and dive into our next entry. And for this one, we have to do some traveling. All the way from the land down under. Please welcome Ben from Australia to the program. This is Ben. I'm from Brisbane, Australia. Just calling back with a few more stories. This one is about a few Yowies. Yowies are virtually an Australian Bigfoot. In the Aboriginal culture, they call them uh, hairy men. Ironically, they have different types of hairy men. They have big hairy men, and then there's the small hairy men. That's how they describe them to me anyway. This was my close Aboriginal friend's father-in-law. Um, they were down camping by a river. This was central Queensland, just in the outback. It's very hot, very dry, rarely rains. Um, it was about 11 at night. They had a fire going down by the river. Across from the river, they saw another group people or what they thought was people also having a fire so you know they were drinking having a good time so they yelled out to them they said hey hey over there waving their hands they noticed that the figures noticed them um, the figures quickly stamped out their fire and disappeared and naturally my friend father and ball crapped his pants um, said quick put out our fire before they see us something's not right and they eventually forgot about it and went to bed the next day, they cross the river to go search for these people or remnants of their camp that was there. They found nothing but big footprints, very big footprints, very peculiar behaviour, no remnants of rubbish, trash, nothing that a human would be using anyway. So that's that story. The next story is my story. I was about 12 years old. My mother was going to look at buying a horse in this town called Kilcoy. It's very dry, very hot, almost desert-like out there. When my mother was looking at the horse to buy, I was standing on the side of the car looking down this very long driveway. And at the end of the driveway, there was a tree clearing. Out of nowhere, I saw a kangaroo bounce from one side of the clearing to another side, about two hops in on the driveway. And after the kangaroo, I saw a small hairy man, or a yowie, that's five foot tall, incredibly dark, hairy skin, moves like lightning, he's very quick. I mean, if you could keep up with the kangaroo at full pace, you got to think he's moving pretty quick. That was all I saw. He quickly blended into um, the bushland. That's not the only Yowie stories I have. I have plenty more. A lot of the townspeople in Kilcoy are aware of the Yowie, or Yowies. There's even a statue erected in the town of Kilcoy because so many locals were seeing them. Yeah, and they stink. They stink bad from what I've heard. Okay, thank you. Bye. Thanks, Ben. Now, the Yowie is a creature I'm pretty familiar with. But honestly, I don't know a ton about them. So let's pose that question. What the hell is a Yowie? What could be lurking in dense bushland in this isolated rural community in eastern Australia? 
Witnesses have reported seeing a giant, lumbering creature. Australia's version of America's infamous Bigfoot. Its name, the Yowie. Animal X travels to the small farming community of Taree, 150 miles north of Sydney, to investigate reports of this frightening creature. The Yowie is just, frankly, a different name for the hominoid creature that we call Bigfoot Sasquatch and that the uh, Europeans and Chinese call the Almas. The Yowies are going to be um, the same situation that you have in the States. Anything that is large and upright and covered with hair is going to be called a Yowie. But there will be two kinds. There will be the giant kind and there will be the more man-sized kind. That will be the Alma. The giant kind will be the Bigfoot Sasquatch kind. That clip comes from the television program, Animal X. Any link to the entire episode is available in the show notes, and you can watch it for free. So from my quick research, I was able to discern that the Yowie displays many of the same characteristics as our legendary creature. Stick structures, rock throwing, tree breaks, all that seems to also apply to the Yowie. You know, eye shine, which... We also know as a big component in many Sasquatch sightings, seems to be prevalent as well. Now they find footprints in the bush, tracks that resemble human but are barefoot, in very hostile terrain, and more importantly at least 50% larger than your average human track. Then we have the first-hand accounts. I did a little digging and pulled out one of my favorites. This one comes courtesy of Local Legends TV on YouTube. We basically had the spotlight on him then as he ran away from us, directly opposite us, as he ran away and he was running on two legs like a man, a very large frame, probably about seven foot high. Um, he, you know, he wasn't obviously wearing clothes, he was, uh, had a pelt on him, like an animal, and he, uh, on two legs, he went down the hill and stepped over a fence, uh, a normal farm fence and threw some heavy tussocks and stood behind this tree. And the tree came up and had a fork in the centre of it. But we could see the outline of him behind the tree. He was bigger than the, the actual tree itself. And uh, as I said, I had the spotlight and Shane had his big rifle with a 12-power scope on it, you know, and Shane's a bloody good shot. And um, you know, I said, give it to him, mate. He said, oh, I think you better have a look. He said, it looks like a man to me. So I've got all the spotlight and Shane lets rip with this 7.9mm projectile into the base of this tree and, he's, and his eyes went from a real yellow to a real dark orange and I just about, you know, just the fear runs up the back of your spine and, and this bloke, whatever it was, took off up the hill on two legs and he, and he run up this hill like, like any bloody sprinter. And we could just hear him when he, we had the spotlight on him, I guess, for another 250 metres as he went up this hill through the scrub. And he went out over the top of the hill heading south. And you could just hear him going through the trees. And my friend Shane, he said, well, that's it. He said, we're going home. <laughs> I said, home we freaking went. <laughs> I'll tell you. And I tell you, we never went bloody spotlighting much out there after that. I'll tell you, it's bloody stifled us. Now that was a story told by Matt McMahon, an SCS worker, which I'm not sure what that is, near the Blue Mountains of Australia, which, based on my research, seems to be the Yowie hotspot down there. 
In fact, this next piece of anecdotal evidence was also recorded near that area. And like most of the other pieces of quote-unquote proof of this creature, this one too is quite reminiscent of her own local big guy. The following vocalizations were filmed in a tunnel near Newness, North South Wales, Australia, by two men whom claim a ten-foot-tall yowie stalked them while inside the famous tunnel. And for those a little more local, this is the Glowworm Tunnel in Wollemi National Park. Now, full disclosure, I don't put a lot of stock in this recording, or most of the Yowie audio I was able to find, but there is audio out there. Now, I didn't find much mention of the two different species of Yowie, both Ben and Animal X mentioned, so perhaps some further digging is in order there. But until then, thank you, Ben, for making the call and for sharing your story. Maybe one of these days, I'll make it down to join the search myself and that's gonna do it for this episode Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me Derek Hayes additional support is provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Addie Lloyd all audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use those spooky tunes you hear under each story that's co.ag music and white bat audio thank you so much for listening Please stay safe, and until next time. Our final, final call puts our relationship with man's best friend in question. Or at the very least, makes you look over your shoulder next time you hear a dog bark. Please welcome Nick from New York to the program. Hi, how you doing? This is uh, Nick from New York. When I was a kid, roughly 10 years old or so, back in the mid-80s, we had like this neighborhood legend of this dog we called Rabies. We all assumed it was like a, a rabbit dog of sorts just roaming through the neighborhood, but we all independently had the same description of the dog having like these amber glow eyes. You know, just folklore to some degree, but we, we had all had seen it on one occasion. And mine was, I was walking home from my friend's house uh, nighttime, a little past dusk, whatever, in the summer, and, you know, I heard this rustling in the woods along the road, and, I'm scared. I'm 10 years old. So I, I, I kind of start hustling back to my house and I just hear something behind me. And I get to the edge of my yard and I turn and I see 
scraggly dog-like uh, creature, but unlike anything I'd ever seen, like the, the haunches, the width of its shoulders were wide and it tapered off in the back and had pointy ears and it had a snout, not a long snout, little snubby, but the eyes had this amber glow that just kind of stood out. And I ran into my house and of course, you know, my father sees me freaked out and huffing and puffing. He comes out, and of course, and there was nothing there. Nobody saw it. But um, interestingly enough, my next-door neighbor, he had seen it two days later going through his yard. And uh, I noticed because he didn't come out of his house <laughs> for about a week. Yeah, that's my sighting. We called them rabies and uh, haven't put too much thought of it until I started listening to the podcast. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Nick. Having grown up with a similar legend, I can sympathize. The old man that sometimes camped out on his property across the road had a scary German shepherd. I had no reason to think that it was rabid or evil, but I bet my head would fit perfectly in its mouth. And that was concerning enough to me to be worrisome. Now, I suppose these are monsters of a different sort. They're not necessarily mysterious, we, for the most part, know of their origins. They're not monstrous, meaning these dogs are only slightly larger than average, if that. And there's nothing really paranormal about these types of stories. But that doesn't stop them from being terrifying in their own way. And if you're looking at your good boy or girl thinking, my pup would never. The CDC and Humane Society report that there are over 4.7 million dog bites in the U.S. every year, and on average, 16 of those result in death. Thanks again, Nick, for the entry, and thank you for sticking around to the end of the program. Have a good night. 